Well, good morning, First of Ann. I started to get up about three times, and that was terrifying. So, never seen that before. Maybe we'll, we'll start doing that at harvest. That was, that was wild. My name's Jamie, if I don't know you. Hopefully, I'll get to do so at some point. I love this church. Privilege to pre- preach here many times. And Taylor, thank you for the invitation to come back again this morning. Uh, very grateful. Uh, joined by my beautiful wife, Shanna, right here. Three of our four kids, my two oldest, uh, right here, James and Gabe. Kyle, my little girl, she was my plus one at a wedding yesterday. It's our first big date to go to to a wedding. And then our three-year-old, he's in the kids' ministry. And I'm just going to tell you on the front end, I fully expect the fire alarm to go off. <laughs> and if I'm you, I would not treat that as a drill. <laughs> All right, that's going to be the real thing when that happens. So Grady is back there. If you get a massive resignation of children workers, that's on us. We expect that uh, this morning. Uh, Taylor mentioned earlier about the downline summit. So let me do that here at the beginning. I really want you to come. So much so that if you register and just type in first of Ann, you get 50% off. That's going to run through tomorrow. So there needs to be a sense of urgency on your behalf. And we're going to make some pretty big announcements tomorrow about the summit. And you're not going to want to miss that. I truly believe it. Uh, The theme this year is discipling in a day of division. It won't take much for me to unpack the relevance of that, but we know we exist in a pretty fractured climate, and that's both inside and outside the church. I think the thing that's grieved me the most is not what's outside the church. We should expect that. We should never be surprised nor upset to see a broken world who doesn't know Christ to act like it. That shouldn't be surprising or even alarming to us. I think the particularly harmful and discouraging thing, especially over the last three years, has been watching that same chaos enter inside of the church. And we've recognized more and more, at least at Downline, that part of our equipping disciple makers is training people, how do we disagree charitably? How do we stay unified, though we may disagree on secondary, tertiary, and whatever the fancy word for fourth level issues would be? So we hope to do that to really add a robustness to our equipping as we make disciples to really move and interact in in 2023, to engage effectively both inside and outside the church. And so uh, downlineministries.com, if you go to our resources tab, you'll see a link to the summit where you can register, where you can sign up. Again, the code FIRSTAVAN will get you half off running all the way through tomorrow. So we really hope Hope to see you there at Harvest Church, February 10th and 11th. So we're about a month out. February 10th and 11th. It's going to go from a Friday afternoon to a Saturday afternoon. And then you will be set free. All right, Judges chapter 6. You have a copy of God's Word, meet me there. We're going to be looking at uh, some real snippets of the life of, of the Judge Gideon. Now to frame that against, and we'll do so quickly, the backdrop of Judges itself, if you were a good English student or a good student of literature or learned how to write papers, you'll know that at the beginning, if you had a teacher worth their salt, they would have taught you to include a thesis, write a statement that lets you know the driving point of the purpose of your writing. Now, Judges gives us the thesis of what is the entire cultural ethos of this day, right? So what did it, uh, what was the driving idea behind life in Israel at the time you find at the very end of the book? Last verse, it says, in their day, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the backdrop of Judges. 
Every problem they encounter throughout the entire of the book is because that reality was true for them, is that they didn't have a king and that they only did what was right in their own eyes. And when there is no objective standard for morality, this is what happens, right? So no objective standard of goodness and righteousness always leads to cultural chaos. And they're tasting that in real time. The only problem with that last verse in the book of Judges is that it's not entirely true. Because they had a king, they just rejected him. Because when God established Israel and brought them up out of Egypt, he established himself as their king. Now, they didn't have a human king, but they had a king. And when God is rejected and King Jesus is not acknowledged, chaos, fracturing is always the result. And that's what's happening here. So what does God do? Well, you get this cycle in the book of Judges. You get, uh, you get this time of peace. You get all this idolatry and sin. You get God raises up an oppressor. Israel gets tired of being oppressed. They cry out for a deliverer, and God then sends a judge. That's what the judges are. They're deliverers. And the pattern God normatively takes in the book is he finds really unsuspecting people and calls them to do great and mighty things, and that's Gideon. So Gideon is found, before we get to the patch we'll read, uh, read today, he is uh, trampling out wheat in a wine press down in the ground, doing so secretly because the Midianites, he doesn't want them to see. If they see the kind of chaff and wheat flying up into the air, they'll come and they'll take it. So we already know he's living in a time where he's hiding out, barely able to provide for his family, living in fear of what is the current oppressor of Israel. Now, why have they been brought into oppression? Idolatry, sin unrepentance so God finds him and God calls him and Gideon is in disbelief why me I'm of the smallest most irrelevant tribes in all the nation of Israel in a sense he hasn't even been walking with God his family is a family of idol worshipers why me and this is what God does in fact that's the proper response of every Christian why me that when God reveals the gospel to us, overpowers us by his grace, we respond in repentance and faith. The response is, God, finally, you got this one right. Here I am. I'm on your team. Aren't you lucky? The response is, why me? How me? And that's Gideon's response. And then God is going to immediately call him to a terrifying work. So scary, and he knows it, that he only does it at night. Why was he afraid? Well, we're going to see in our passage that we're about to read. He's afraid because he knows if he does that, he's going to die. And that's the first thing God calls Gideon to when he says, tear down the idols and the altars of your people. So he tears down the altar of Baal and the altar of the Asherah, and that's where we pick up our reading. I'm going to read verses 28 through 32 in their entirety. Then we'll walk back through them, and then we're going to skip over to the episode of Gideon and the Fleece because it's not really fair to talk about Gideon and not talk about the Fleece. The reality is, and this isn't a pick on any of us, I used to be in this boat, uh, a lot of us have misread this passage for a long time. And we've offered a really uh, well-intentioned but unbiblical counsel according to the Fleece. So we're gonna spend just a few minutes unpacking that as we end this morning and then our time will be up. So uh, Judges chapter six. Verses 28 through 32. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, so he's just torn down the altars. This is where we pick up the story. God called him. 
He just tears down the altars. And the men of town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself. It's his altar that was broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Father, we do ask in this time that you would be pleased to speak, uh, that you would correct us according to your word, that we'd be just a little bit more conformed to the image of Christ. So that direction we pray and ask the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we learn a few things here uh, about what's happening in the immediate family climate, tribal climate of which Gideon's been living. Right, so we, we obviously know that one of the first things these people did every morning was go to this altar. They went to worship Baal. They went to bow down and sacrifice at the altar of Asherah. We know that because they discovered early in the morning. This was a ritual for them. They go, it's torn down, and in the tearing down of it, their response is twofold, and one of them's really peculiar. One is they ask, who has done this? We'll talk about that in a minute. I think that's an odd question. Secondly, we see that they are raging angry. Notice, not just who has done this, but we want to know who has done this because we want that person to die. And just make a note, this is the typical response when you start to press on or tear down somebody's altar and their idols. You start just a little bit to push on what someone's built their life upon, what gives them meaning, purpose, and value, because that's what an idol does. An idol is the thing you look to for meaning, value, and what is the driving force of your existence. The reason why altars were built to idols is because that thing in your life is ultimately what you worship. It's ultimately what I worship. It's why we know a good litmus test of where is our heart is when things are removed from us, what's our response? And in our response, we start to go, whew, that might have had too big of a place. And their response is, uh, Gideon just took away the most important thing in our lives, and now we want to kill him. Now, we don't necessarily react uh, to that degree. Okay, but think about the last time you had a friend pull you aside and maybe start to press on a little bit of something that you had going on. Or maybe it was your marrying yourself too intimately with political ideologies. Maybe it was being all too consumed with the success of children. Maybe it was a family image that dadgummit, your siblings and kids and grandkids, they are just not doing a good job upholding that. Or maybe it was a 401k that in the last six months has become a 101k. Right. Hey, whatever it is, what's been your emotional 
response. And when that emotional response is rage, anger, when something like that disorients us to this degree, that's a good sign that there may be an idol to which we've built an altar. And look, I tell you, and I don't, look, Shannon and I never speak on parenting. We don't think we're qualified. Our oldest kid is eight, all right? We will know if we should speak on parenting once they start parenting, right? That's kind of our point of view. But I can tell you this right now. You go to any of those sports games, I can tell you all sorts of idols and altars, all right? When your kid, that he's doing a good job to walk with his shoes tied and you expect him to drop 20 points, you got issues going on. All right, and you're mad when it doesn't happen. And I'm just here as the Lord's messenger to tell you, your kid ain't going pro. I don't even know your kid, and he ain't going pro. But, and we laugh, and it's meant to have, you know, to lighten the mood. But that stuff gets to be serious. And as a parent or grandparent or, or, or uncle or aunt or wherever you find yourself, when those existential realities, right, existential is the fancy word for existence, when that stuff starts to mess with who we are and then we're angry and then we're raging, for we're disoriented, just like they are. There is only one unwavering thing to ever attach who you actually are, and he walked out of the grave on Easter morning. Nothing else is worth that type of emotional investment in your life. Nothing. But we give our emotions over to it all the time. Right, which leads us to the second point. Why do I think that question of who did this is so peculiar? Well, think about it. This is the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people. They have been worshiping at the altar of false idols. And they wake up and these, this God of Baal that they think is so powerful has been destroyed. That should have been theologically alarming to them. How can this God we've been getting ourselves over to be so easily chopped down? That's not a God I'd want to worship. How can this Asherah that we have been sacrificing to over and over again be so easily destroyed? Who is not the question they should be asking? Why is the question they should be asking? Why did this happen? What is going on? Like this has massive philosophical, theological, sociological implications. They have built their lives on these false gods. And they don't even ask any of the important questions. Why? Well, I think that's why verse, answer, uh, verse 30 answers. Bring out Gideon so we can kill him. They don't ask the important questions because their anger, their emotion has made it impossible for them to see what reality actually is. And that happens to us too. And in that is this subtle, hey, beware the power of emotion in all of our lives. You know, we're not called to eliminate them. God has emotions. We're creating his image. They're good things. But somewhere along the way, this idea has crept in that almost every part of us is tainted by sin except the way we feel. We just assume the way we feel is correct. But oftentimes it's not. 
Because if we really believe in that big doctrine of total depravity, which is the fancy way of saying sin really has corrupted every single aspect of us, you know what that also means? It's corrupted our emotions, which then means this. None of us have ever felt 100% correctly. Just like we've never thought 100% correctly. All of those things are tainted and mixed in with the brokenness that comes with Genesis chapter 3. Now Jesus, praise be to God, is restoring all of those things. But emotions can blind us to what's actually going on. And when our immediate response to something is blind emotion, then we often can't step back and see what's actually happening. We're prevented from asking the questions that will get us to a better view of reality. And when we have a better view of reality, then we get to respond more appropriately, more effectively. If they could have gotten past their raging anger right here, right, taking a deep breath, right, this is those of us that you send that email immediately and you go, I should have waited, waited 24 hours. I should have sat on that one. But boy, you read it and you were mad or you saw something on Facebook and you decided to post for the world your response to that. And about 12 hours later, your wife hits you with an elbow going, you idiot. <laughs> and you were. Right? It's just that gut emotional response that gets us in all kinds of trouble. They are raging, angry. And if they could have just calmed down, Taking a step back, they might have gone, hey, maybe Baal's not real. What if this false god actually isn't very powerful? What if there was something greater to build our life upon? Oh, that's right. He called us out of Egypt. And then you've got a chance for revival, but they miss it because of blind emotional rage. They say, bring us Gideon. We're going to kill him. And then Gideon's dad steps up and he says, hey, here's how this is going to go, guys. Any of you that come after my son, this is the Trussell paraphrase. Any of you that come after my boy, I'll kill you before you can kill him. Now, if this God of yours is real, let him contend for himself. Why do you feel the need to take up Baal's honor? If he's a God, he should be powerful enough to take care of his own business. Right, so, so they back off. Now, we're later going to see these people are actually going to join Gideon. Okay, so they're going to see something powerful happen here. But before we move on to the, to the, to the fleece, I do want to say uh, two more points. The first is this. Uh, notice when we go to the end of Judges and we talked about, hey, in the day there was no king and they do what was right in their own eyes. You know what happens in that you can get so lost so spiritually discombobulated and disoriented. We have the nation of Israel wanting to kill God's hero sent for their deliverance. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament law and you just read this passage, who are the ones that deserve to die? Just according to the Old Testament law, who deserves death in this passage? The idol worshipers. The ones who have been bowing at the idol of Baal who have been sacrificing on this altar to the Asherah, they're the ones that deserve to die. But instead of getting death, God chooses an unsuspecting hero, sends him 
to tear down their idols, to remove the sin out of their life. And what's their response? We want to kill them. Does that sound like anyone else? See, Gideon is a shadow of the greater Gideon that was to come. When God would choose an unsuspecting birth and an unsuspecting place to send his son as the ultimate hero to deliver us and remove our sin, and yet the world's response is what? Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And so Gideon, with all his imperfections, is this small blinking light that steps into that whole Old Testament narrative of someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming, and there would be a greater Gideon that is to come. And lastly, why does God do this? You ever think about that? I mean, Gideon's about to go to war. Not only is he about to go to war, he's about to go to war outnumbered, about 20 to 1. And he's trying to find warriors for battle, deliver them from the Midianites, take it to the enemy. Why this? In this pretty irrelevant tribe, in this small little clan of this irrelevant tribe of just Gideon and his family members, why put him through something that could have ended his life. It seems pretty small in the grand scheme of everything Gideon's about to accomplish. He's about to become one of the greatest Old Testament warriors, one of the greatest generals, uh, one of the greatest military leaders. Why this? Seems so small and insignificant. And I think God does it because he's teaching Gideon something. Before you can go and lead this massive movement out there, you got to handle family business first. And before God calls Gideon outside the walls, he calls Gideon inside the walls. And Gideon says, hey fam, we got to take care of some business. This idol worshiping deal, it's not going to happen anymore. And before I can take you and go out into the nation and actually lead a movement against our enemies. We gotta have some integrity inside these walls. Because I can't be calling on people to trust the greatness and power of God when you, looking at his family, not y'all, but them, are still bowing down to this bale. I think there's a principle there that God is calling him and saying, he better handle family business first. And you better get that right. You better put your hands to it, Gideon, before you move outside the walls. Now, look, we can take that and we can apply it across every uh, cross-section of our lives. Right, so, so uh, you could start something as small as a family unit. All right, so, so with, with Shannon and me, we could start and say, you know, it may not be super congruent uh, for us to call people to X, Y, and Z if we're not doing it ourselves. Before we start calling on marriages to look a certain way, let's make sure ours looks the same way we're calling people. Before we start trying to give input on effective ways to parent an eight-year-old, maybe let's be putting those things into practice ourselves. And then we move out a little bit further to our small group. You know, before we tell every other small group what it should look like, eh, maybe we should be handling some of that and being examples. Then you get even bigger. Let's go into our churches. 
You know, the witness of the church in culture is rapidly declining. Rapidly declining. Uh, and, and can I tell you this? That's not simply sort of like, well, we're just the faithful people of the truth and the world doesn't like the truth so they don't want anything to do with us. Well, of course, theologically, there's truth to that. And Jesus tells us, hey, don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me. They're going to hate you if you follow me. Those are his words. So that shouldn't surprise us. Can I also submit we make it pretty easy on them sometimes? That at times, myself included, we've been guilty of also doing what Jesus tells us not to do. Don't offer unnecessary reasons for offense. The gospel of Christ and the truth of that is offensive enough. We don't have to do the world any favors with our tone, with our demeanor, with our anger, with the spirit in which we engage the lost to give them more and more reasons to reject it. It's a difficult message in and of itself. And one of the things I think God is exhorting his people to we're starting in my church, maybe starting in your church, is let's pause and before we start trying to charge out there, which we are called to do, let's make disciples of all nations, let's get out, let's go, let's engage. We look inside the walls first. Just as a check to say, hey, are we presenting a compelling picture for people to respond to? And if you were to study this historically, Probably the most effective group that's ever done this amidst circumstances far more hostile than our own is the church of the first three centuries. A church that not only survived, but it uh, experienced exponential growth amidst an environment that was not conducive to it. Right? The, the whole uh, Roman Empire was devoted to stamping out Christianity. Imagine that, military resources, political resources, social resources. If you could disadvantage a Christian, you did so during those days. If you could kill one, you did so. Explosive, undeniable growth of the Christian faith. Why? What we're now, you can read people far uh, more schooled in this than me. Uh, historians have wrote about this, but, but I think you can synthesize it down to three major characteristics. And let me tell you in the front end, I'm not saying these are always true of me, or maybe even oftenly true of me. Oftenly, I'm not even sure that's a word. I majored in English, but I did go to Auburn, so it's like half a degree. Uh, <laughs> it's just a joke. I went to, why are y'all taking offense to that? I said it about myself. Uh, amen, hallelujah, one Christian here this morning. Uh, I totally lost my train of thought now. He started talking about, talking about all that. <laughs> Kyle liked that. Uh, okay, so three things synthesized. I think the first is this. The first is this. They suffered faithfully. They suffered faithfully. They took whatever came their way faithfully and unflinchingly. And a lot of them, when I say suffered faithfully, they found themselves in the arena before Caesar waiting for the lions to be released. Didn't flinch. They suffered faithfully. 
Second thing they did is they were radically, radically generous to their enemies. Uh Uh-oh. Radically generous to their enemies. More Christians responded uh, to the fire of Rome and the plague that hit Rome in the first century with compassion and help than any of the other pagans. It's one of the biggest things that sparked the growth of the early church. Saving the lives of the people that hated them. Radical generosity towards their enemies. Not their friends, their enemies. And then thirdly, the primary message preached by the early church, primary message, uh, it wasn't political, it wasn't moral, it wasn't sociological. The primary message of the early church was Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That was it. You talk to an early Christian, the primary refrain and course of their life was Jesus rose from the dead. And what happened when they kept proclaiming that is uh, the resurrected power of Jesus started saving people and people responded to that resurrected power. Can I think that's a model? Difficult, sure. But if the goal is, and the pattern of Gideon, to go inside the walls first so that we can actually move outside the walls in power, handling family business first before we move outside, I think it's a good pattern. To okay, how am I handling the cultural chaos of this day and the type of sufferings that can come towards Christians in light of it, faithfully or not? Am I radically generous towards those I would deem my enemies? Tell you what, and Shanna, hopefully she wouldn't, you wouldn't ask her this question, so she wouldn't have to answer. But I can tell you this. You know the people I get most mad at and I start to think they're my enemy? Other Christians. Other Christians. I got to be careful. Because even if I deem someone my enemy, I better be radically generous towards them. That's a struggle for me. Okay, so suffering faithfully, this radical generosity, and then proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. Okay, he really did walk out of that grave. That's a historical fact, amen? That fact is always relevant, and it's the only thing that has power, and that's what we proclaim, the power of the resurrected Christ. All right, that's this first little snippet of Gideon's life. That's his call. That's his handling family business. That is, in a sense, I think, a good principle for our hope to engage effectively uh, with people both inside and outside the church. And then we turn the page to Gideon really starting to get nervous. Now, he's just torn down the altars. He survived, but now he's about to go to battle. Family business is handled. He's about to go to war. And he's just not quite convinced he can take that step. And that's where you get the episode of Gideon and the fleece. That's where you pick it up in verse 36, verses 36 through 40. Gideon said to God, if you'll save Israel by my hand. Okay, so are you really going to do what you said you're going to do? Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, I shall know you'll save Israel by my hand, as you said. 
And it was so. He rose early next morning, squeezed the fleece, and he wrung enough dew from it to fill a bowl of water. Then he said to God, now don't let your anger burn. Don't get mad at me, God. I'm sorry. I've got to do this one more time. Now let's do the opposite. Just to make sure, now when I wake up, I want everything else to be soaked in water, but the fleece to be dry. And if you do that, then God, I'll know that you've called me to deliver Israel. So he goes to bed, wakes up, and God does it. Verse 40, he did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and ground all the ground there was dew. What is happening here? Because I'll tell you what was taught to me most of my life with getting in the fleece. Now, disclaimer, if you've taught this, who cares? It's fine, right? This is not like some salvation issue. But if we want to be a little more effective and accurate in our disciple-making, and honestly, I think more helpful, maybe just a small corrective that when someone gave it to me, it was really beneficial, and maybe it would serve you this morning. So how was I usually taken to this passage? I was taken to this passage uh, on a moment of a big decision. Right, okay, I don't know what to do. Our God, I really want you to speak, really need you to bring, bring clarity. Well, Jamie, look, just, you know, like Gideon, just sort of set your fleece out and ask God to answer and ask God to bring you clarity. Throw out your fleece, throw out your fleece. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what that means or what they meant by that or how to have done that. But I got the idea. Ask God for clarity. It was kind of the main message. Hey, that is not what Gideon is doing. Gideon has clarity. He says it over and over again. He knows exactly what God's called him to do. This is not a moment of trying to figure out what is God asking. That's clear. Are you all with me on that? He says it over as you have said, remember, are you going to deliver Israel from my hand? As you have said, as you have said, he is clear on what God is asking. The fleece has nothing to do with clarity, nothing. It has everything to do with trust. Gideon is asking God, are you really who you say you are? Are you powerful enough to do what you've asked me to do? It's a trust question aimed at God's character. It's not a clarity question aimed, aimed at decision-making. Now, when that's brought into my purview, that makes sense. Because I've felt that one. God, are you really going to do what you say you'll do? Are you really capable of protecting my family in ways that I can't? Can I trust you with that? I understand the trust question. I get it. That's what Gideon's asking. He doesn't need clarity. He's got clarity. He knows what God's called him to do. We know what God's called us to do, every single one of us. Do we trust him? Right in faith, I think, simplistically defined, faith is a tangible expression of trust. So what does it mean to walk by faith? Is to live a life that tangibly shows people, I trust God. That's the question Gideon's asking. God, are you who you say you are? Now, you know what we have that Gideon didn't? We have a complete revelation of Scripture that shows us time and time again the answer to that question is yes. Do you know what we have that Gideon didn't? 
a resurrected Christ. You know what we have that Gideon didn't? The spirit of the resurrected Christ dwelling right inside of us. So it's okay, I think. It's, it's human to say, God, can I really trust? Just know the answer is always yes. Absolutely. The only reason we could lose trust in God is if Jesus Christ is still in a tomb somewhere and he is not. So we can trust him. And that's what Gideon's asking. So if you ever asked that question, I'd say maybe not good company, but you're an okay company with Gideon. He doesn't finish the best. But I do want you to be maybe comforted. I think it's a normal question. And I think if we're honest, we've all asked it. And I just want to comfort you this morning. The answer is yes. You don't need a fleece. You've got the scripture. The answer is yes. You don't need a fleece. You've got a resurrected Lord. And the answer is yes. You don't need a prophet. You've got the Holy Spirit. So we can trust him. Okay, so in these, I encourage you to keep reading Judges 6, 7, 8, 9. There's a lot that happens with Gideon. A lot to glean from it. But here we know this morning, probably need to handle some family business first. All of us asking the Spirit, hey, are there any altars or idols that we need a Gideon in our life to take an ax to? It's going to hurt. might make us mad. But what will be left behind is a more faithful person. And then, hey, uh, we don't have to ask for clarity on the will of God for our life. God's given it to us. Walk by faith, live holy lives, share the gospel, make disciples. That's God's will for you. Tons of freedom in that. Now we get to live anywhere we want, work where we want to want. We can do all those things in a thousand different ways. But if you're wondering, can I trust him? Because that's what the fleece is about. Just know, yes. Let's pray. Uh, God, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we hope and pray that uh, it was clear, compelling, uh, honoring to you, accurate. And maybe this afternoon in ways that you haven't before, maybe through the voice of a friend or a spouse, a family member, or even a kid, God, that you and your kindness would reveal any of these altars or idols that may be present. And your grace, though it may hurt, but it might make me angry. Would you tear those down? We don't want those up in our lives anymore. And in ways in which we need to handle family business, may we handle it with grace, with truth, so that we can move forward as a more effective witness to the world. And God, for any of us here who struggle with trusting you with these big questions, I'm just grateful I don't need a fleece anymore. Just help me to trust the resurrected Christ his power, his faithfulness, his unchanging nature. We know it's there. Help us trust it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.